let's go ahead and open up our Bibles as we do something that is really, really different from what you know your pastor is used to and also what he's comfortable with. I appreciate your prayers this week. You know me. Usually just give me a text and let's expound it, but we decided to do something a little bit different uh, this year, and that is look at the Christmas hymnology, look at some of our favorite hymns and study them, looking at theology behind them. But I'm excited for this opportunity. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians first. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 through 18. Uh, and I know you just stood for a really long time, but uh, I'm going to encourage you, if, if you got a little bit more energy in you, to when you get there, stand for the honor of reading God's Word together. That's that Baptist calisthenics really getting up the juices flowing this morning. We're excited about that, and we're going to read this. I'm going to explain why I chose this passage a little bit later, but for now, let's go ahead and read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Paul writes, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He's writing this from prison, by the way. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word, word without fear. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures Let's go to Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, Lord, as this most precious time of year is upon us, we pray that you would really, Lord, help us to stay calm and focus on that which matters most. Lord, let us not be distracted by all the gadgets and all the stress of the holidays, Lord, but let us be mindful instead of our Savior who was born 2,000 years ago with the purpose of dying for the sins of his people and giving him the gift of his righteousness and being resurrected from the dead and sitting at the right hand of the Father forevermore. Let us never miss the gospel in Christmas, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I don't think it's any secret. I've been, I've been here like five and a half years now, and I don't think it's any secret on this, which would be, I guess, the, the sixth... Um, Christmas series that I love Christmas. I love uh, all things Christmas and I, I specifically love Christmas hymns. To me, they are some of the greatest theological statements we have in put to music and I absolutely love them. I'll sing them continuously even without really having the gift of singing all that well. It's never stopped me before. Why would it in Christmas? But I, I really have grown to even love and appreciate so much more some of these Christmas hymns and the theology we sing this time of year. And so with that, I thought it would be interesting the next three weeks to kind of again look at three different hymns. I was going to do four and start last week, but I couldn't decide 
on a fourth. And so we're really going to use this opportunity to do what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So really how we're going to approach each hymn is I want to take some time to look at the history of the hymn and the theology of the hymn. Uh, biblically singing, gospel-centered singing, as it says in Colossians, comes directly from the heart, from the desire to express worship to the king and to express majesty to his name. So they're rooted in the words of Christ that dwell within us. And so great theology makes great hymns. So again, I want to start first before we even dive into any of that by giving you some thoughts kind of as a framework for this series. When we look at these hymns and how we're going to use them in terms as a basis for our time together in worship. First, let me remind you, I've only got three hymns and I've already chosen the three. So it's unlikely I'm going to choose your favorite, right? And specifically, as I've been asked at least twice now, I'm not choosing Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, all right? Callahan's going to Callahan, you know what I mean? Um, so, uh, but it, it doesn't mean, unless it's, that's your favorite hymn, that your hymn's not a good theological hymn, but I've only got three weeks, so I've only chosen three hymns, uh, and so bear in mind that I might not get to your favorite. Second of all, uh, we know that hymns are not infallible, Right? <laughs> The Word of God is infallible, yes. It contains no wrong theology. It contains only the right truth about God. It's your sword of the Spirit. Hymns are not that way, actually. Hymns are fallible. They're created by men. They're created by men that are not being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so there are some hymns that are better than other hymns. In fact, many hymns are flawed in various ways. And, and you could pick apart the hymn if you so choose to. And so... Since hymns are not the word of God, I therefore have liberty to take from them what I want to say uh, and say what I want to say. But uh, knowing when I preach the Bible, when I preach God's word, we walk through 2 Samuel verse by verse. Uh, what I want to do is get to the original intent of the author. That's the right way to study and preach the word of God. That is not the case with hymns. I have liberty uh, to look at the hymn and extract something that maybe the original author didn't have in mind, so as we'll see today. So it's not the Bible, and I've got complete liberty to do that. Lastly, I want to tell you a portion, again, of what I'm going to do is tell you about the history of the hymns. I have uh, had the opportunity on vacation to do quite a bit of research regarding this series, taking time to read multiple sources to get as much information as I could but I could be totally wrong about the history of some of these hymns. And so just keep that in mind when we're going through this series. Of course, the first song we're going to look at is the song we just sang, O Holy Night. It's a hymn that's well-loved by many people. Uh, it's a hymn many people love to sing. And yet, uh, as Justin reminded me this week, it's known as one of the hardest songs to sing in a church congregation. You probably felt the weight of that earlier today. So thank you. I thought you did good though. Um, so uh, sorry, Justin, I already chose it full steam ahead. Uh, I know it's a hard song to sing, but it's a song we can learn so much from. In fact, did you know that O Holy Night was the first song ever broadcast over radio waves? 
1906, a man who figured out how to actually send the sound of his voice over the airwaves, he did it on Christmas Eve. And the first thing he did was read the Gospel of Luke and then play on the violin, O Holy Night. Um, I always, I think the first time I ever heard this song, and this is really so so sorry for this, uh, was in the background of when Kevin McAllister finally met old man Marley at the church while his granddaughter was singing in the movie Home Alone right before he attempted murder on the wet bandits. Uh, But uh, I I remember that being the song and uh, it struck me as wonderful then. So we're going to spend more time this week on the background of this hymn because I, I really, I knew nothing about the makeup. So let's start with the background information, the historical background of this song. And this is going to get real interesting. So Uh, It was written between 1843 and 1847. There's some debate, which is why the span of four or five years there, some people believe it was written in 43, others believe it was written in 1847. Either case, some 200 plus years ago, right? For most of those 200 years, uh, the song, about 200 years ago, the song, Oh Holy Night, was extremely popular. In fact, it was an instant classic, so to speak. As soon as it was sung in 1847, it was sung all over the place. And now it's made its way around the world and we know it as a classic Christmas carol. Uh, The place where it was written is a little town called Roquemar in France, in southern France, uh, apparently. Location is Roquemar, France. It's really a small village, a wine village in southern France, a population of about 5,000 people. Uh, So there's this little Catholic church in Roquemar with a a beautiful organ, and this organ was built in 1690, and it's actually still there today. And this organ really plays a very prominent part in this story. So by the time 1847 came around, that pipe organ needed to have some repairs done on it. So the local parish raised some money, they repaired the organ, so it would be able to be used again. And the local priest wanted to celebrate its return on Christmas Eve, in midnight Christmas Mass. He wanted to be able to play the pipe organ for the first time in a long time, and he wanted to have a special Christmas Mass, so keep that in mind. Because now we're going to move on to the three men who are responsible for the song, O Holy Night, as we sing it today. The first man is a man by the name of Placide Capot. Placide Capot. He is a Frenchman who was born in that little town of Roquemar in 1808. He died in 1877. Placide's family, as most families did in that region, owned a winery. And as it was back in those days, whatever your family did, that's what you grew up To do, he was supposed to grow up to be part of the wine-producing family, but until the age of eight, he had a a really tragic accident at the age of eight. He was playing outside with his friend and a gun, and his friend shot his hand off. So at the age of eight, his career, because again, back then it was set in stone when you were young, took a drastic change. He was no longer going to grow up in the family wine business. And so instead, he turned to education. The friend who blew off his hand, his dad ended up paying for Placide's school. I guess he thought that was only fair, right? My son blew off your hand, so I'll pay for your school. Anyway, Placide made his way to London. He studied law in Paris, and what he really grew to love in his studies was poetry. And he actually became a pretty well-known poet in the area of southern France. And so 
when the priest of the church was planning, remember, that glorious organ's return, he came to Placide and asked him, as a poet, to write a poem. And Placide agreed. That's really, again, where we're going to get the first glimpse of why I chose this passage in Philippians 1. And that is because Placide was not a Christian. He was not a believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, there are many people who think that he was an ardent atheist. But he was a poet, and the priest needed someone to write a poem, so he went to the most famous poet in town and asked him to write a poem about the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, This man hardly ever went to church, which in those days wasn't something that anybody did. Even if you believed, you still went to church. But the priest nonetheless asked him to do that. One night, when he was on a journey, Placide read from the Gospel of Luke. Story of nativity, when Jesus was born in a stagecoach as he was going along. And and that's where he wrote the poem that we have today. He began to wonder, what was it like on that night that Jesus was born? Hence the name of the song, O Holy Night. And it is an absolutely outstanding poem. Even more astounding that this man was not a Christian. Actually, the poem he wrote was not called Oh, Holy Night, it was called some uh, French name poem that I can't pronounce, uh, or Midnight Christians in English. And as he read and polished this poem, he had a pretty good set of poetry and actually realized, man, this is actually quite good. That really what this poem needs is to be sung, not read. Which brings us to that second person that's responsible for bringing us Oh, Holy Night, and that is Adolf Adams. Adolf was a famous and prolific composer back in his day. He was well known for several of the ballets and compositions he had done. He was also a confidant and acquaintance of Placide. So Placide comes to Adolf and asks, Hey, would you write some music to go along with this poem? He finally agrees to compose the melody for his friend's poem. And he set out to do that. And he wrote the, the, the melody in a fairly quick turnaround. And that melody is, again, the same melody we still use today. In fact, the whole thing took about three weeks from the time Placide was asked. He wrote the poem, went to his friend Adolf. Adolf wrote the music. Then at midnight on Christmas Eve in 1847, uh, a famous opera singer by the name of Emily Lawrence sung the song in that chapel some 200 years ago. And it instantly became such a well-known song. Here's another interesting fact. Adolf Adams was not a Christian either. Adolf, from everything that people can see, was actually of Jewish descent. He didn't believe that this poem written by Placide was written about the Messiah because as a practicing Jew, he did not believe that the Messiah had come yet. There's a very good chance that this man was not a believer as well. But the song was almost immediately fully accepted and loved by all the French people. It spread throughout the French Catholic Church. They began to sing it all over France. And then after several years, Placide made it known that he was not a believer. So the French Catholic Church banned the song from being sung in all of France because it was unworthy to be sung in church. It's actually the very same thing we would do today if we had someone write us a song in our church and they put it to music and we found out the writer or musician were not believers, we'd stop singing the song. So the French church denounced the song, but it was too late. 
It had already gained so much fame. And before long, it would reach the international stage, which is where we find the name of this man, John Sullivan Dwight. He's the man responsible for the international fame of the song. He's listed, by the way, if you have a hymnal and you see O Holy Night, you'll see his name listed at the bottom. And that's because it was John Sullivan Dwight who was the one who gave us the English translation of the song. John Dwight was one time a minister. In fact, he was an American abolitionist who hated slavery with a passion. Which is why in the third verse, the second verse we sang, but we cut out a verse. The, the third verse of the hymn, you'll find where it says, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. John Dwight fell in love with this hymn primarily because he viewed it as an anti-slavery hymn. That's why he wanted the song so desperately translated into English. And so in 1855, he had the song translated from French into English. Being a musician, he changed some of the words to make it more singable. And what you have and what we sung today is the song that John wrote. It's not the poem that Placide wrote. Uh, in fact, what I'd like to do is, is quickly just read you the poem that Placide wrote because I personally think the poem is more theological than the hymn we sing, which is interesting. Um, let's read it together. Uh, you don't have to read it out loud, but I'm going to read this poem for you. This is from uh, Midnight Christians. Midnight Christians is the solemn hour when God as man descended unto us to erase the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of his father. The entire world thrills with hope on this night that gives it a savior. People on your knees, attend your deliverance. Christmas, Christmas, here is the Redeemer. Christmas, Christmas, here is the Redeemer. Second stanza. The ardent light of our faith guides us to all to the guides us all, excuse me, to the cradle of the infant. As in ancient times a brilliant star conducted the magi there from the orient. The king of kings was born in a humble manger. O mighty ones of today, proud of your grandeur, it is to your pride that God preaches. Bow your heads before the redeemer. Bow your heads before the redeemer. Third stanza. The Redeemer has broken all shackles. The earth is free and heaven is open. He sees a brother where there was once but a slave. Love unites those who restrain the sword. Who will tell him our gratitude? It is for us all that he was born, that he suffered and died. People stand up, sing your deliverance. Christmas, Christmas, let us sing to the Redeemer. Christmas, Christmas, let us sing to the Redeemer. So you see that the gist is, is still pretty much the same, but... John Sullivan Dwight tweaked it a little bit. John was a minister. And finally, we've got something right here, right? Because we got rid of those two heretics. John came and fixed the question, uh, the, fixed, the, fixed the, uh, the entire hymn itself, which is why this is such a powerful hymn today. Except, I would say, not so fast. See, John Sullivan Dwight was a minister, but he was a Unitarian minister, I don't know if you know this about Unitarians. Unitarian minister believes that God is one person, not three. John Sullivan denied the Trinity. He believed that Jesus was a great man inspired by God. He believed Jesus was a savior chosen by God, but that Jesus was not God. And as we've looked at time and time again, if you deny Christ's divinity, you deny the word of God. Because a Christ that is not divine cannot save. 
They would also deny original sin, which is a belief that sin is inherited. So there we have it. That's three strikes, by the way. All three men responsible for bringing you the hymn we sing, O Holy Night. We cannot be know for sure, but what we, from what we can tell, none of them were really true believers of the Christ they sung about. So what do we do with that? <laughs> Sorry to bust your bubble. Isn't this fun? <laughs> Come have your favorite Christmas hymns all destroyed. No, um, no, this is really why I chose Philippians chapter 1, friends. Because I want, I want to see and I want you to read with me Philippians 1, 15 uh, through 18. Okay? Look at what it says. Paul writes, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my change, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. So he says, some people, listen, they, they preach for themselves, not because they love Jesus. Well, some people wrote hymns that we sing because they love Jesus, they love the church, they love what Christ has done for them, and some people have written hymns over the course of the years for selfish reasons, right? To get paid to write a hymn. To write it for a good reason or cause, but not really to believe in it. So what are we to do with that? Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So what can you think about this? Well, you can have two thoughts, I think, that will be helpful for you. First, you, you can know the truth. I think we see this clearly here. You can know the truth of the Christmas story and not be saved. That's the first thing I think we really can see from this understanding, this historical background. You can know the truth, and really almost everybody this time of year, especially in our country, can likely tell you the story of the Christian Christmas. Most people can probably say, yeah, Jesus was born in a manger, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. They can know that story. But you can know that story, you can write poetry, you can write a hymn, but the question is, do you know the Savior? Salvation is not about knowledge of text, it's not about the date of your baptism. Salvation is not something you do. Salvation comes from a heart that is broken over its own sin. Comes from a heart that is repentant of itself and cries out to Christ for deliverance. So the question I would have for you is, are you like the three men we looked at? Or are you like the person who sings this song from the heart? You can know the truth, but not know the Savior. Second, I think the second thing we can learn about this historical background is this does not diminish at all the words written in the hymn we just sung. I don't know how God causes it to happen. But through God's power, these men brought to us a song that is really full of phenomenal theology. In fact, I do know why. Because even if men are silent, the rocks could write a song that would praise the Lord full of theology. He could use it. That's what we're going to look at now in these stanzas. We've looked at the historical background. Let's look at the theology of this hymn. And really, this theology, this hymn, it's all about the light that was given to us on that glorious night. There are three things I want to quickly consider about the theology of this hymn and that light. And the first is that the light comes to darkness. The light comes to darkness. Only light 
can dispel darkness. And on that glorious night some 2,000 years ago, that holy night in the shroud of darkness, a light appeared. Just imagine yourself back in that day when Jesus was born. If you were in that little town of Bethlehem, it was just like any other night as far as you knew. But on that night, a light came to the world for the first time and it came into a world that was dark. It's what we see. I want us to look at the idea as we look at the light came into darkness that the world is dark. The world is dark. The hymn says, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. The world was long in darkness, was long in sin and error, pining. That word pining, it means decaying or declining as someone is pining away, they're wasting away. That's when Christ came. He came when the world was dark and decaying. In fact, look, at, look with me at Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus really begins his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, look at what it says. The words will be up here on the screen. It says, now when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but if you know the text, historically, Zebulon and Naphtali were, were part of the despised Jews. The Zebulon and Naphtali were the tribes that were despised by all the southern tribes of Israel. All the northern tribes really were despised by the southern tribes because the northern tribes did not drive out the Gentiles in the promised land. So Zebulon and Naphtali, they didn't obey the, the words of God. They didn't obey the command of Joshua. They didn't drive out the Gentiles. In fact, what they did is they began to marry and mix among them. And that's really why they were referred to as half-Jews. They were despised. And listen, what he says in the text, he says, this is who Jesus came to. Verse 14 of Matthew chapter 4. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying... The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Just a reminder, friends, Jesus Christ did not come to the healthy, enlightened, or righteous. He came for the sick, darkened, and unrighteous. He came to the darkness, and his light shined from the darkness. He came to those who were sitting underneath the shadow of death. And it says, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. On that oh holy night 2,000 years ago, shrouded in utter darkness were the people of Israel. And they didn't even know it, but upon them a light was born. And that light shined brightly. Not only did light come to a darkened world, but I also want you to see that the light came to a world that was weary. As it says in the hymn, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Every single one of us today is weary, aren't we? In fact, the older you are, the more weary you become. And I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually and emotionally. Life is hard. 
It seems that every year can be harder than the year before. In fact, I do not know why I hear this every November and December, people who are so excited to get rid of the year 2021, right? They, they just, you can, people say it all the time, man, I can't wait for 2022. 2021's been a horrible year. Well, they said that about 2020 and 2019 and 2018 and so on. Friends, life is just hard. Jesus Christ came some 2,000 years ago when especially the Jewish people were weary. Pharisees had weighed them down with suffocating legalism. The, the Romans had weighed them down with harsh discipline. The tax gatherers had weighed them down with exuberant taxes that made them all poor. But on that O oh, holy night, the light came. The one who said in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, what about us? Are you weary today? Are you weary in this Christmas season? Can your weary soul rejoice? Maybe you're weary with the burden of school or work or family. Are you burdened with finances or struggling to find a spouse? Are you struggling to find out that your very marriage is hard? Maybe you're a parent weary from the constant bickering of your children. If so, take heart. Because, oh, holy night, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Or as the Bible says in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 23, his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The light came in the darkness, and the light we see came for a reason. And that, that reason, secondly now, as we look at the second reason the light came, is that the light we see leads us to Christ. The light we see leads us to Christ. The second stanza says this, Led by the light of faith serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. Now, we didn't sing that part this week, but we can thank Chris Tomlin for that, apparently. Uh, but th that's the second stanza of the verse. It says that the light leads us to Christ. And it's important to know that the light leads us. Light leads us. It leads us to him. You are directed, guided in your life by the light of faith that has been gifted to you by Christ. Remember, hear me, the baby in the nativity did not grow up to be a carpenter. He did not grow up to be a great philosopher. He did not grow up to be a great religious leader of the day. The baby in the cradle grew up to be executed on your behalf that you might have life. The baby in the cradle was born to die, and that is what he did. He grew up to be our Savior, and we have been given this gift of faith because of that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The night you first became a believer in Jesus Christ, that faith you were given was the light that will continuously lead you back to Christ. The light leads us. But secondly, we know the light led the wise men. Again, this is in the second verse of the stanza. It says, so led by light of a star sweetly gleaming. Here come the wise men from Orient land. In Matthew chapter 2 verse 1, it tells us about these wise men. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Do you remember last December when everybody was flipping out about the Christmas star? You remember that? Did you see it? It was the convergence of Jupiter and Saturn in the sky. Remember, they, they look like one big star. And, and some people said, well, that's what led the wise men to Bethlehem. It's the convergence of what they call the Christmas star. But friends, let me, that's not what happened. Listen, this was not just some happenstance that occurred. We, we know it's not the case because Matthew 2.9 actually says that the star reappeared, moved, and led them where they needed to go. It was the glory of God that appeared that drew these wise men to Jesus. And friends, it's the glory of God that appears that draws you to him as well. We also see that the light also leads us through trials. The light also leads us through trials. The hymn says, the king of kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials, born to be our friend. Friends, in all the trials we go through, the light of Jesus is what leads us through. We know the text says Jesus never leaves us nor abandons us. He never turns off his light. And his light often shines the brightest when we are in our darkest of days. So, so what does that all mean? For this light to come and lead us to the Savior that was born in the cradle? What does it mean that the Savior came to help us not to be weary, not to be in darkness, but to lead us? Well, third, I want to see that this light demands a response. And we actually see this in the hymn. The light demands a response. And what is the response? Three things quickly I want us to consider as a response. The first is we are to love one another. As it says in the hymn in verse 3. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. He taught us to love one another. In fact, if you have your Bibles, just skip over to the gospel of John chapter 15, except skip over this way, not this way, if you're in Philippians. Gospel of John chapter 15 Loving one another is, as we know, taught throughout the New Testament scriptures. And friends, I, listen, I know this is, this is simple theology, but isn't it something we could all learn to do a little more? There's always room to love a little bit more. Let me ask you do, you, do you really just love the person beside you? I know it's easy if you're sitting next to your spouse. That's an easy layup for you, right? But Look beyond. Do you love the person on your row? Do you know their names? They're part of God's church. They're part of the family of God. Do you love them? Are you extending energy to love that person? John 15 verse 12 says, Jesus is speaking, says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love the disciples? Right? If, if that's the example, if we're supposed to love one another as Jesus loved the disciples, how did Jesus love the disciples? Simple. He died for them. He gave his life for theirs. We are to love each other with an unbreakable, sacrificial love. Keep reading in John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, 
For all things that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Oh, how we need to love each other, especially at Christmas time. Do you see how the culture is so after your heart to only think of yourself, particularly in this time? Do you see that? Whether my home is in the right place for Christmas, whether everyone's coming to my house or my in-law's house, or what's the expectations for all this? It is after your heart, but friends, you are called to love Remember what it represents, what that star, we need to love one another. Whenever family gets together, there is potential for tension, amen? How about this? How about you just love one another? How about you die to self for the sake and the good of the other person? Let's try that. Easier said than done, right? All right. But not only are we to love one another, what's our response to this hymn? Well, we're to live as free people. A response to that light is we are to live as free people. This doesn't mean what you might think it means, but hear this. It says in the hymn, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Now remember this is the verse that caught the heart and attention of John Sullivan Dwight being a hardcore abolitionist. He, he changed the third verse and he actually made it more of an anti-slavery viewpoint. Now we know that God does hate human slavery. In case I have to say that again, and I shouldn't, but I will. God does hate human slavery. But if you look at the original poem that was written, I think it really draws out an even greater truth here. The original third poem, third stanza in the poem says, the redeemer has broken every bond. The earth is free and heaven is open. He sees a brother where there was only a slave. Love unites those that iron had chained. As we read in John 15, 15, again, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. Hear me, church family, everyone who is a child of God was a slave. Every single one of us. We were all common slaves to one slave master, the slave master of sin. We all had a common slave owner and we were driven to do what he said to do. But Jesus Christ came forth to break us free from that slavery. Us common slaves are now common brothers in that we are now all friends in Jesus. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he truly broke every bond of slavery. Here's a couple texts just to reiterate that point. Romans chapter 8 verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Romans chapter 6 verse 14, for, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but grace. Romans 6 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Romans 6 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Jesus says in John 8, 32 and 36, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. 
See, listen, that third stanza, it's not really about Christ breaking the slave bondage or of the, of the horror of human slavery in America, though that is true. The gospel did do that. But the third stanza of this song is about Jesus Christ breaking you free from your slavery to sin. Praise be to God. <laughs> it leads us to our last thing. And seeing the light demands response, we are demanded, therefore, to worship the king. To worship the king. And, and reality is, I can't say it any better than what the hymn says. Three different times it says this in each verse. It concludes really with a call to worship. Chorus 1 says, Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices, O night divine. Fall on your knees and worship the king that has set you free. After the second verse, it says, He knows our need. To our weakness, no stranger. Behold your king before him lowly bend. We're at the third of verse three. Christ is the Lord. Ever we praise his power and glory evermore proclaim. Christ is the Lord. This is what happens on that O holy night, friends. Christ is the Lord came to deliver us and set us free from the bondage of sin. It is a glorious, glorious night. So that's O Holy Night. Spent a lot of time in the background than we normally would, but that was an interesting story which is really good for us to hear. Because even if people are silent and they don't know the Lord, the rocks will cry out praises to Him. And friends, the question becomes, have you met the Savior? See, this... This, this hymn hits a little bit different when you know the king about which they're singing. Amen? Listen, this is what's remarkable. This hymn means more to you and you have a greater connection to it than even the ones who wrote it. Because you know this king. You know this light. And if you don't, friends, oh, would today be the day that you turn out of the darkness and come and see the marvelous light that we celebrate not just on Christmas, but every single day. Would you stand together as we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. Praise your name that you cause all things to work together for good, for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to his purpose. Lord, you caused this hymn that really has an unholy history to be a holy hymn that we sing about a holy night. We praise your name for that. Lord, we ask that as we reflect upon its theology, Lord, that even as we, as we go through this series, that it would become that these are not just songs we sing because they sound good, the rhythm's nice, we feel good singing them, but Lord, we would connect our hearts that these are spiritual songs sung personally to our creator and God who has redeemed us from the darkness and brought us into this marvelous light. Lord, that this would, would ignite us in such a way to sing this so much more from the heart. Lord, as we engage in the praise of the one who came to set us free from our bondage to sin, from our slavery to sin, we thank you for that tremendous gift. Lord, as we reflect upon this now, we ask that you'd be with us. Lord, that there would be one here who, who would say, I'm still in darkness. I don't know the marvelous light of the gospel. I've never personally experienced the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That, Lord, today would be the day they would make that right. They'd repent of their sins. They would place their trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And they, 
too can be set free today. We ask that you would do it. We trust that you will. Pray this in Jesus' name.